0: Good morning, Parashat Vayera. Um, we were introduced in the last week's Parsha Lech Lechot, to a chap, a chap called Abraham, Abraham Avinu. He is the original, the founding patriarch of the Jewish nation. Although there's uh, some discussion as to whether he indeed was Jewish, probably not. Uh, he was the first major monotheist um, evangelizer. That means he had rediscovered, or perhaps you could call it discovered, monotheism in the sense that at some point people began to be much more inward looking in terms of their spiritual beliefs and uh, they were not, they didn't believe in one creator God, they sought, uh, well they found different sources of power within the natural world, sometimes even beyond the natural world in their own imagination and they refused to accept the concept of a, an omnipotent Creator God. And Avraham Avinu and the Midrash discusses it in some detail, uh, rediscovered or discovered monotheism, the concept that everything is un, in one setting. It's the Creator God that put everything together. We all, uh, anybody who understands Religion today accepts that as a given, but there were times in history when that was not accepted. Today, the three major faiths of the world are Judaism, which is in minuscule in numbers, but it's the founding monotheistic faith, um, Christianity and Islam, both of which developed out of Judaism to some extent. Uh, I'm not going to give you a class in comparative religions now, but they are these Numerically, those two faiths far outnumber any other in terms of numbers of the world population, and both of those, plus Judaism, believe in one creator God. Abraham is the founding figure, and that's why he features so prominently in the Torah, and why he's so important in terms of who we are as a nation. So, we're going to look at the initial... Pesukim, verses, of Parshat Vayera. Why? Because something very curious happens here, um, in that although we have seen a number of communications of interactions between Abraham and God take place in the previous week's Parsha, Parshat Lech Lecha, we're now going to see a new type of interaction, one where Abraham in fact abandons God, and starts dealing with some people who, chance by chance, happen to be walking past his home. And uh, it is such a curious phenomenon, um, as you'll see, that all the commentaries, starting from the very earliest commentaries, Midrash and Talmud, and stretching all the way through to modern times, focus on this as a as an odd occurrence and want to draw lessons from it. So we're going to look at Abraham. So I'm, I introduced to you who he was and he's just had his Brit Milah. As Rashi is going to tell us, God came to visit him, as it were, to visit the sick, because that's an appropriate thing to do. And that's how this entire episode begins. I've only taken four verses. You know, if we had many more hours than the hour that we have, um, I would have taken a number of verses after these four and continue to go into delve into the story. Just to give you some idea as to the extent of the difficulty just with these four verses in understanding the dynamics of what's going on, look at the Hebrew um, that I have included in the second source of the source sheet. Um, and the source sheet, of course, is available online. Uh, when you, if you're listening online, you can download the source sheet on my website. You see that all that Hebrew, so there's more or less more, it's two well, thirds, I would say, of the first page of the source sheet in small Hebrew letters. Is Rashi the commentator, the most prominent medieval commentator on the first four verses of the Parsha, the ones that we're going to look at. Rashi very rarely um, gives such lengthy explanations. can't say, you know, it does happen uh, you know, quite uh, on numerous occasions, but by comparison with other chapters in the Torah um, and other episodes that we have in particular Genesis, this is very, very lengthy. And he's quoting Gomorrah, he is quoting Midrash, Um, And you're going to see, we're not going to actually read through the entire Rashi. I've just put it there because um, the focus of today's Shi'ur is going to be the commentary of Rabbi Tzviher Ferber, and he refers quite regularly to Rashi, so I I just wanted to have the text of Rashi in front of us so that we can refer back to him. We're going to look at one or two of them, and then we're going to look at Rabbi Ferber's commentary. So, let's begin by reading the psukim themselves. God appeared to him, to Abraham, in the plains of Mamre. That's giving you the geographic location, etc. We're going to see that Rashi comments on this. In In a previous year, I gave a Shi'ur, in which I discussed why Mamre was mentioned. And he was sitting, Abraham was sitting at the entrance of the tent, um, when the day was very hot. Hayom. The second verse, And Abraham lifted his eyes. In other words, he, he suddenly noticed something. And behold, three man, men were standing beside him. Alav actually literally means on top of him vayarat likratam and he ran towards them this is the first obvious curiosity hi right? the first obvious curiosity if they were standing beside him or on top of him why did he need to run towards them um, from the entrance of the tent so there seems to be an inherent contradiction within this pasuk if he they were nitsavim alav why what, was it necessary for Vayarat Likratam mi Petacha Ohel. In any event, Vaishtahu Artsa, when he got to them, he bowed down, prostrated himself to the ground. Vayomar, and he said, Adonai, my lords, Imna Matzati Chain Beinecha, if only I have found favor in your eyes, Alna Ta'avor Me Al Avdecha, please do not pass on from beside your servant. Yukachna, this is the fourth pasuk, Please let a little water be taken. Note, not take some water. Let a little water be taken. And bathe your feet, wash your feet. And recline under the tree. But that's where we're going to leave it today. What's the most obvious problem in these four verses? It starts right at the beginning. What happened to God? God's coming to visit you. Imagine God knocked on your door and said, good morning, hello, I'm here for a visit. How ADHD would you have to be if you saw someone else in the distance for you to say to God, "Uh, excuse me a minute, I've just got to go and see those other people. What? You're with God, you're communing with God. This is an interaction with God everything will be explained I'm simply raising the issue God is somehow present in a more direct way than usual because God, you know as we learnt in in elementary school Hashem is here Hashem is there Hashem is truly everywhere I mean Hashem is everywhere so Hashem is always around us but in this sense it says Hashem, God appeared to him and yet he decided that he needed to take care of three random people who happened to appear on his doorstep. So that is the most obvious problem with these four verses. There are others, which I one or two, one which I raise. There's others which we're going to come to. There the are commentaries which consider the fact of three men that one of them is God. That there are two others. We're going to. I, I'm, first of all, that's true, but I'm, I, I want to focus on this anomaly. All the commentaries, by the way, consider the three men not to be men, because it's Chazal, which we're going to see in Rashi. But let's look first at Rashi. I'm just going to look, if you, I'm not going to look at the Hebrew. We're just going to go straight to the English. Okay. So um, with the bottom of page one, and we're going to start. And God appeared to him by Yira Elav Hashem is the words in the Pasuk. Why did he visit him? To visit the sick man. He just had a Brit Milah. He was an extremely old man uh, in his 90s. Not many people, uh, by the way, it was a self-administered circumcision. And he, it's the third day. Uh, look what it says here. Rabbi Chama, the son of Chanina, said it was the third day after his circumcision. And God came and inquired after the state of his health. It's, a, it's taken from a Gemara in Bava Matsya. By the way, the third day traditionally... In traditional in classical Hebrew um, or rabbinic texts, the third day after the Brit Milah is considered the most painful and the most crucial in terms of recovery. Where should Avraham Avinu have been? Not at the entrance of his tent. He should have been in bed. He should have been uh, certainly uh, taking a bit of uh, R&R and not looking for guests or even having um, any kind of visitors um, We're not going to look about Mamre that's uh, we did that in a previous year But Yoshev literally this is the last line on page one was sitting the word is written as Yoshev Without the Vav, so usually Yoshev is spelt Yud Vav Shin vet. if you look in the text of the Torah the first look at source one the who Yoshev it's written without the Vav and therefore, maybe, turn the page, translated as he sat, yashav, right? So not um, was sitting, but he sat. He wished to rise. In other words, it's a proactive or active um, verb. Not, uh, not passive. He was sitting, but he sat. In other words, he sat down. Why? He wished to get up. He wanted to get up. Who wouldn't want to get up if God came to visit them? But God said to him, sit and I will stand, as it were. You shall form an example to your descendants. Why? That I, in times to come, will stand in the assembly of the judges while they will sit. So if you go to a Din Torah, if you go to a Bet Din, a rabbinical court... The three judges, or depending how many judges there are, but the minimum number is three, they sit down. And um, it says that God stands alongside the judges. What is the source of this in in the Torah? That when God came to visit Abraham, the first person who recognized God independently, he stood and Abraham sat. Uh, As it says in in, the, in Psalms, I'll just look, read you the Hebrew um, from the previous place. Elokim Nitzav Ba'adat Kel. God stands in the, in the congregation of God, in the assembly of judges. Anyway, where was he sitting? Continues Rashi on page 2 at the tent entrance. Why was he sitting there? So that he could see whether anyone was passing by and invite them into the house. That's what Rashi is telling us. All these these ideas that are presented to us by Rashi are quotations from Chazal. Quotations from Midrash or Gemara. Um, In the heat of the day. So why was it so hot on that day? Why do we need a weather report? You know, the Torah is known for many things. But it's not known as weather.com. Why do we need a weather report? Kachom Hayom. What is the point? Says Rashi God brought the sun out of its cover so that Abraham would not be troubled by travelers. God was doing the opposite of what it was that Abraham wanted. He brought the sun out of its cover, whatever the cover of the sun is, but he created an incredible heat on that day. In Israel, you would call it a hamsin. Why? So that he wouldn't be disturbed by travelers. But then when he realized that Abraham was upset that no travelers were coming, he brought him the angels in the form of men. No human being could handle the kind of heat that was experienced on that day. It was the hottest, you know, someone's reading the newspaper, this is the hottest day on record since who knows when. This was the hottest day on record since who knows when. Nobody was going out on that day. They all wanted to stay in their tents or homes in the shade. Certainly nobody was walking outside. God realizing that Abraham was very disappointed not to be able to entertain guests because he was an extremely hospitable man who always wanted to bring guests into his home brought him three guests but here we have the chazal version of who those three men were they're not men they were angels essentially telling you that these three angels were plants that god brought them there for the express purpose uh, you're going to see that they had messages or at least if you read through the story they they had messages for abraham but he brought them there on that day because Abraham was so disappointed not to have any guests. Behold, three men. So, we're going to, um, I think we're not going to read any more Rashi at this stage. I'm going to just read this, a rather long Rashi. I don't think I'm going to read the whole thing. But there were three men, right? There were three men standing beside him, on top of him, whatever it was. One of them came to announce to Sarah the birth of a son. He was there as the bearer of good tidings. Those tidings were, you've been barren until now, but next year, you're going to have a baby. One of them, one of the three angels, came to overthrow Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah, the two wicked cities of the era, were going to be subjected to the same type of destruction that was experienced during the flood, but here in a much more localized version, They were the epitome of wickedness and God denial and um, human depravity in that era. They were going to be destroyed and one angel was brought in as the um, executioner, as it were, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the third one, says Rashi, and one of them, this is the third one, came to cure Abraham. In other words, to assist in his recovery. We know that, that there are angels that help us in our recovery. The name for that angel is Raphael. Says Rashi, answering an immediate question that may pop up in your mind, surely you don't need three angels to carry out three tasks. Can't we multitask if we're angels? Surely an angel can do all three jobs. The angel can come cure Abraham, give the announcement of the birth of Isaac, and then go off and destroy Sodom. What do you need three of them for? Says Rashi, um, this is because one angel does not carry out two jobs. An angel is given a very specific task, and they specialize. And you can't ask an angel to do something, or not me, but God doesn't ask an angel to do another thing when they're on a specific task. They're very focused. You may know this, says Rashi, because throughout this section, you see that the angels, um, it mentions the angels in the plural. And they ate. And they said to him. So each time it talks about the group, it talks about them as a group. But when it comes to the announcement of the birth of Yitzchak, what does it say? And he said, I will certainly return to you. So suddenly it goes from the plural to the singular. So only one angel spoke when it came to the announcement. And with regard to the overthrow of Sodom, it says, for I cannot do anything. And later on, it says that I will not overthrow the city. So it goes to the singular. By the way, what is the concept here? The concept here is there's not two powers in the world. There's only one power. So when an angel does something as an agent of God, there has to be a oneness it that oneness is reflected as the angel only doing that job another another idea is if an angel whatever the spiritual being that an angel is is if an angel does two things suddenly you may think of, uh, of an angel as a god but if an angel only has the ability to do one thing at a time and is limited to that the recognition will, um, will dawn upon people that actually it's God doing it. The angel, this angel can do that, and that angel can do this, but no angel can do two things. Only God has the capacity, when it comes to doing that kind of thing, to do everything, and angels are simply vehicles of God's activity. Okay, we're going to leave Rashi, because we're going to go to um, Rabbi Ferber. I don't... Uh, some of you were at the wedding um three years ago dahlia's wedding and i gave out this booklet you can all take one uh it's an, my introduction in english and the first two chapters in hebrew of rabbi tzvi hirsch ferber's memoirs anybody who's listening online um, first of all i have included a link on my website to a PDF of this pamphlet, but if you want it in its um, printed form, all you need to do is email the office, office at yinbh.org, and we will mail you a copy of this pamphlet. Um, This is one of the many projects that I'm working on, slowly making our way through it. Um, Some years ago, as I describe in the introduction, I discovered that Rabbi Ferber had written memoirs, which remained unpublished almost 50 years after he died. And through all kinds of shenanigans, I managed to obtain those memoirs, legitimately, but it required finessing. And I am now in the midst of publishing them. Rabbi Tsvihash Ferber, just a quick um, quick bio so that you understand who we're talking about, was born in Slobodka in Lithuania. Slobodka was the sister town of Kovna, which was a major city in Lithuania. Slabotka was a suburb over the over the Viljampole River and um, When I say town, you know, certainly not in the way that we would understand a town It was a bunch of wooden homes and ramshackle streets. That's where he was brought up It's famous today in the Jewish world because Slabotka produced two very important yeshivas at the end of the 19th century one of them was known as Slabodka Yeshiva the other one eventually moved to a place called Kamenets and was Kamenets Yeshiva and some of the greatest rabbis of the 20th century emerged out of Slabodka Rabbi Tzvi Ferber who was born in Slabodka ended up in England and uh, somewhere in the teens of the early 1900s and he lived in eventually in soho in west london where there was a jewish community and that community no longer exists hasn't existed for probably 30 years he died in 1966 uh, i've read through his memoirs, so what i'm about to tell you is a bit of a spoiler he had a very miserable bitter life as a rabbi the only thing he had was a reliable um, salary so they continued to pay him until his retirement and then after his retirement so he could live there and function there, but as a community, he always felt that they weren't very nice to him or respectful. There were people in the community who were, but the uh, board of management of the community and the movers and shakers, and particularly the chazan, he felt, did not treat him with due respect. He was a scholar, and Soho um, synagogue, and where he lived in Soho, was very close to the British Museum. And he discovered very early on that the British Museum had numerous uh, Hebrew printed books, many of them not available anywhere else, even in the Jewish world, because they were first editions which had never been republished, in addition to which they had manuscript material that nobody had access to. And he uh, became very friendly with the person who managed the library at the British Museum. Today it's moved out of the British Museum it's called the British Library, it's its own entity. But at that time it was at the British Museum on I think Tottenham Court Road. He lived very close to there and he would go there every day and take notes and he published more than 20 books. All of them containing both original insights of his own and a range of material drawn from these incredib- this incredible treasure trove of Jewish publications. Anyway, he died in 1966. If you were, I guess, from London and you knew who he was, you had his books and that was it. So, you know, my father, for example, I, I, I don't think we ever went through a Shabbos when he didn't quote a Torah from Rabbi Tzvi Hersh Verbe at the Shabbos table. Never once and he looked at it every week. But most, the vast majority of people, even in England, certainly Europe, and for sure the United States, had and have never heard of him. Why would they? He was not a significant Jewish leader. He was a scholar who was in a forgotten shul in the west end of London, and he died as an elderly man in his eighties, and that was it. So he remained forgotten. I don't want to say that I'm going to bring him back into, into uh, you know the widest possible um, fame, but certainly my aim is to make more people aware of him. And particularly this week, I want to talk about him because his yard site is on the twentieth of Cheshvan, and today is the fifteenth of Cheshvan. So next week will be his yard site It will be his fifty-third yartzeit. He was born in nineteen. So he died in nineteen sixty-six. And so what i've done is i've collated and actually edited and enhanced um, his commentary on these very early psukim in vayera and we're going to focus on his commentary i don't want to tell you that there's no other ways of explaining the things that he talks about but he draws on his own incredibly vast knowledge of talmud midrash and obviously the classical sources like rashi and others comes up with some of his own novel ideas occasionally you'll see and i'll I'll point it out when we get to it he says i heard from a um, a great scholar i have it on good authority that whenever he says that he's talking about himself but he doesn't want to say i've come up with this idea so he says i heard in the name of a great scholar so you'll see it, it pops up once or twice i don't know if we get through the whole thing but it's fascinating now i didn't because I was so busy editing this material yesterday and in order to by the way this is not available online what i need to do in order to get this is i need to scan it i need to turn the pdf into a word doc and hope that the word doc recognizes all the hebrew letters from the scan from the pdf and then i have to go through it and correct all the mistakes and make sure that the hebrew flows and sometimes add um, you know, sometimes he abbreviates words or he puts it in acronym form and I expand it to make it more accessible. So what you have here, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to find it online. I've created it for this year. Let's start with the very first piece on page three. I love Hashem. God appeared to him, appeared to Avraham Avinu. hayom. And he was sitting, remember we said this, he was sitting at the entrance of the tent. Kachom Hayom. What did we say that Kachom Hayom meant? It was a weather report. It was a very, very hot day. What does the word Kachom mean? What does the word Kachom? Like the heat. Kachom, the, the letter, chaf, before any Hebrew word as um, a prefix, means as or like. That's the wrong prefix to use. What should the prefix be? Abet. Bechom hayom. In the heat of the day. Not kechom hayom, like the heat of the day. So Rabbi Ferber points this out. The kashay says it, it doesn't make any sense. Dutrach lomar lanu bechom hayom in the heat of the day why is it telling us if you want to understand it he says, if you want to give a, a literal understanding a basic understanding of this anomaly what would you say that right away in the morning as he felt the heat of the day he immediately went outside um, and sought visitors, sought guests. Okay? So he's saying the, the letter chaf, hayom, immediately as it became hot, that was when he sought visitors. That's a basic understanding. It's still curious because it still should say bechom hayom, because the point is, it, we're not really focused on Avraham Avinu um, looking for visitors, we're focused on Avraham Avinu. As being sick how could he be sitting there if it was so hot as Rashi had pointed out so Rabbi Ferber continues he says Ube sefer kol dodi. I looked online to find out what this sefer is I found four different books of that title that he could have been referring to and he gives me no clues I don't have the book um, although it is available on hebrewbooks.org, but I didn't check through it each of them to see which one he's referring to. And by the way, there could be another kol dodi that he was referring to that are not that is not found online. In any event, kol dodi ra'iti b'shem ga'on I saw in the name of a great scholar leva'er masekatuv kecham hayom b'chaf hadimyon. Uh, I saw why it is that the letter chaf is used as opposed to a bet. Ki chazal, quotes a chazal, a, a Talmudic source in Baba Batra, um, Daf Yud what does it say? Amru. Ha-kadosh me'en olam haba. There are three individuals who are recorded in the Torah as having tasted the world to come in this world. Who are they? Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. That's the Gemara and Baba Basra. And if that's what you say, it's possible to suggest, Tam remember we said that God removed the sun from its cover. Do you recall that? That Rashi said, why was it so hot on that day? Because God had somehow created an extra level of heat to emanate from the sun, to make it more hot than usual. And perhaps through this Gemara in Baba Basra of those who have tasted Olam Haba, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, we can understand the need for God to have removed the sun from its cover and make it so hot. Ki vinu, chole haya because on that third day, um, Abraham Avinu was sick as a result of having been circumcised three days earlier. And here we have another quote from Chazal. It's a Gemara in the LeAtid Lavo. There's no such thing. This is a very interesting, by the way, a very interesting concept which requires much further discussion we won't have time for that today it's a fascinating chaza Uh, so christianity in particular has this concept of heaven and hell where does that come from do you know where the concept of heaven and hell comes from greek mythology hades is the god of the underworld right this concept that there is Two places, there's a very negative place, and there's a very positive place. Zeus takes care of Mount Olympus, and Hades takes care of the underworld, of, you know, the souls that are in purgatory. The concept of heaven and hell is a pagan concept. Okay? This Gemara alludes to this idea very much. What does it say? En When you die... There's no such thing as Gehinnam. What is it that happens when you finally are free of the burdens of the physical world? And here we're getting into Kabbalistic territory, and I'm not going to pretend to you that I understand it completely. I'm simply going to repeat to you the words. God will remove the sun from its cover, similar to what we saw in the Rashi, about what happened on the third day after Abraham's circumcision. Tzadikim mitrapeim ba, Urishaim nidonim ba. You're going to the same place and the same thing happens. For the righteous, standing in front of the sun is going to be a positive experience. For the wicked, standing in front of the unsheathed sun is a negative experience. I like to present it in the following way, and then we'll continue with Rabbi Ferber. God put us on this world, he gave us a soul and a shama. And ultimately we're going to stand, as it were, before the Kiseha hakavod, before God Almighty, after our life is over. And we're going to, as it were, present him back with the neshama that he gave us. In what state will that neshama be? Will it be as pure as it was or better than when we received it? Or is it somehow diminished as a result of the life that we have gone through and what we've put it through? In that, and by the way, this is in... uh, as it were in an atmosphere that's beyond time and space because god and heaven don't have time and space in that moment whatever the word moment means in a place that's beyond time and space guna shama standing in front of god will go through a process is it a positive process or a negative process is your soul in its return to god in an up situation or a down situation but it's in exactly the same place it's lifnei kisei hakavod there's no heaven and hell there's god and your neshama is the only variable so when god in the way it's described in this gemara removes the sun from its sheath from its cover what he's doing is he's this is i guess kind of an allegory right He is shining a light and heat on you. How do you emerge from that experience? Do you emerge, as it were, as a tzaddik which has been nitrapeh? Or do you emerge as the wicked who has been somehow needed to go through the purgatory? There's no Hades and there's no Zeus. There's God. So that's the way the Gemara presents it. But now what Rabbi Ferber is going to do is he's going to use this association of the sun being removed from its sheath at the moment of death. And the same use of this idea uh, with reference to Abraham on the third day after his Brit Milah when God came to visit him. That's what he's going to do. It's a beautiful idea, isn't it? Just presented so well. So let's look. Shenei Marni quotes a pasuk as to why um, this makes sense. This is the Gemara in Nadarim. The shenirmaz bekan, says Rabbi Ferber. And that is what is hinted at here. Shahaya kechom hayom hayadua. What? It wasn't bechom hayom. It wasn't the weather of that day. It was like the Chom Hayom of the day when you die. It's that day, the third day after Abraham's circumcision, when God appeared to him, it was a day of Chom, like the heat. That day had the same heat as the day of the ultimate moment when you're going to be standing in front of God. It was like that day, like the heat of that day, like when the sun is removed from its cover. He quotes another pasuk in Malachi um, as to uh, why that should be. I'm not going to go into that. Why did God remove the sun from its nartika on that day? So that um, Abraham should be eased out of his pain. Because as we said, tzadikim are not affected by that heat. Tzadikim are helped, indeed cured. They are going to go through a process of healing as a result of that exposure. Kachom hayom is an allusion to the fact that God appeared to him and removed the sun in this way out of its sheath so that, um, so that his medical condition should improve. Adshayat um, tekech. How do we know that that worked? How do we know that it worked? How does it make any sense? What did Avram Avinu do as soon as he saw those three guests? He ran towards them. I hate to be so um, blunt without being as blunt as I could be. It's not something that you'd expect of a 99-year-old man, three days after his circumcision, to run towards guests. Right? If, if that's the case, the kacham hayom seems to be indicating to us that through that he was so improved that he was able to run towards the guests only two psukim later. To run towards them, the and we see a similar situation with Yaakov. V'yizrach lo ha-shemesh. The sun came up. And then it says, V'hu tsole'ah al Remember, he had this terrible battle with the... He wrestled with the angel. He changed his name from Jacob to Israel. Right? You have wrestled with God and with man, etc. That's why he's called Yisrael. So how was he able... Hmm? And he prevailed that you see that the following morning, again, a weather report, the Bible isn't weather.com, and the sun rose, says Rabbi Ferber. Why is it telling us and the sun rose? Because that was the same sun, was the same kachom hayom sun, as a result of which, even though he was in pain, he could go on. Somehow the sun assisted him in his medical recovery. That's the first piece of Rabbi Ferber on the Parsha. Let's continue, Vaharav Chaim Vital, so any of you who know um, the history of Kabbalah will know this name, Rabbi Chaim Vital. He was the principal Talmud, disciple of the Arizal, of the Ari, who was the original um, uh, populist for Kabbalah, who emerged out of Tzfat in the 16th century. And his Talmud, the one who wrote down all the teachings of the Ari, was Rabbi Chaim Vital. But Rabbi Chaim Vital katav, what does he write? So we know that actually Abraham was sitting, as it were, at the gates of this hell situation. hayom. The whole idea of including the words kechom in the, hayom in the pasuk, in the verse, was to tell us that he was on this cusp. He was sitting at this situation of Gehinnom. Because the fire of the Gehinnom that we're just talking about, of this, what is the neshama going to feel if it's imperfect and represents itself to God? It's going to feel the heat and the pain and the suffering of that which needs to be medically improved. Shalav Amar Hayom Ba Boer Katanur Etc. That's what the pasuk says in Malachi. What are we being told here? Says Rabbi Chaim, we tell something very interesting. We have a principle that those who are circumcised those who go through the process of circumcision or i guess in terms of women who are part of a community that values circumcision will never descend to the depths of hell that is i wouldn't say get out of jail free card but it definitely elevates your status that in and of itself has already raised what you are when you represent yourself to god and that is why it's telling us this immediately after Aramavinu had the Brit Milah, to convey to us this particular dynamic that Gehenom applies less to those who are circumcised. And that's what it says in the actual bracha that we recite at a circumcision. There is a salvation. For those who are, who are going to have their Brit Milah from falling into the pit of Gehenom, whatever that means in that terminology, because of his covenantal circumcision, that you've placed on his flesh. We actually incorporate this idea into the Bracha that we say at the Brit Milah. I bet you've never thought about. but you've been to a lot of, of Brit, Brit Milahs. Over the years and you've probably never thought to understand the translation of the blessing actually performing the circumcision on a child ensures that they have an elevated status when they return their neshama to the, to its maker let's look now at what it says so remember we read in Rashi why does it say that he was Yoshev Petach HaOhel He was sitting at the entrance to his tent. Why did we need this information, says Rashi? In order so that he could see if there's any random passers-by who happened to be going along the way, to see whether or not he could invite them into his tent. But he can't do that if he didn't have CCTV. So he couldn't do it from inside the tent. The only way he would be able to do that is if he sat at the entrance to his tent and he scoped the surrounding area to see if anybody was passing by. And if he would see a traveling, a wandering traveler, he would immediately invite them in. That's why he was sitting. That's what Rashi tells us uh, um, about the phrase, Petach why we need to know that, says Rabbi Ferber. What is it actually telling us? anyone who'd already been to visit Abraham avinu and eaten in his tent eaten in his home actually somebody who'd been to abraham might think to themselves you know Is it too much of a good thing you know it was very nice he invited me once i can't expect to be invited again so if he would pass by the tent he thinks well, i'll wait for the next tent i'll wait for the next service station and i'll go there and they'll take care of me there. So Avraham Avinu was concerned about that. He didn't want people to feel embarrassed to come in a second time. So he wanted people to return. That's why the word veshav is used. They would return and he would bring them into his tent. Not only first time visitors, but even second time visitors. By the way, that's a lesson in Haknasat Khim. Don't think that once you've invited somebody, once, that you have discharged your obligation and you never have to invite them again. You know, somebody say, did you invite that fellow? You're sure I invited him 32 years ago that doesn't help what about last week you needed somewhere to eat we needed somewhere to go we needed a shoulder to cry on whatever it is chesed is not a one-off event chesed is an ongoing obligation and that's what's demonstrated by the way rashi explains this pasuk says rabbi ferber and we can also elude from this what was the whole purpose of Abraham's interest in people, not only so that he could feed them. He wasn't a hotelier or somebody who enjoyed cooking. That wasn't the purpose of this. He wanted to bring people closer to God. He knew something about himself. By the way, self-awareness is really important. He knew he was unique. What was unique about him? He was the only person in the world who was a self-generating monotheist. He didn't need anyone to tell him to be a monotheist. He was a monotheist. He believed in one creator God. And he knew that everybody else in the world didn't believe in one creator God. Well, what would happen if he died? By the way, at this stage he had no children. What would happen if he would die? The concept of a creator God, of being a monotheist, would die with him. So he was single-handedly trying to change the trend from polytheism to monotheism. That was his lifelong project, and at this stage, the only way he could do that was, you know, if you give somebody a nice cup of tea and a biscuit, then they might be willing to listen as they're eating and drinking what you have to say about theology. Possibly, I'm not saying that everybody would, but that was the choice. If you if if met somebody in the street and said, excuse me, I just want to, you know, if you meet a missionary in the street and they want to give you a leaflet, You're not going to be too interested. But if they invite you in and they give you a piece of cake, you might be, whilst you're eating the cake, be somewhat motivated or at least polite enough to listen to them. Abraham's purpose on this world, as he saw it, was to spread the cause of monotheism. So look what Rabbi Ferber says. How did he do that? He'd give them a piece of cake and he'd say, by the way, before you eat the cake, I hope you don't mind, would you... Possibly make a brocha. What's a brocha? Explain why. Well, you know, God created the world, and that's why we have. Who's God? Suddenly, a conversation would begin, and maybe just to make him happy, or maybe because they bought into the idea, they would make a brocha, whatever the blessing was. So, He would, through the medium of food and hospitality, draw people closer to God. Kihu Hazan Umafarnes Lakoli would tell them. God is the one who sustains and gives everybody what it is that they need. Vitabha midrash, and the midrash, there's included the medrash, Shemishel or atzal avorech birkat what did he do to those who refused to say to bench? So, you know, once they finish the piece of cake, um, they may not want to eat. They may not want to bench, right? I mean, not everybody wants to bench. They want to get out of it, right? They came for the piece of cake. They've listened patiently to this man droning on about God. Now they're, satisfied maybe he gave them some chulent and giggle as well and now they want to go he says no excuse me i want you to he gives them a little booklet and he says i'd like you to bench bench what are you talking about bench He starts explaining to them that you have to bench you know it's god exists leave me alone. i'm not benching what what would he do to those people says rabbi ferber <inaudible> he would say you know what if you don't want to bench no problem that will be 5.95 please he charged them for the food Why should he give them free food? If it comes at the price of them, he didn't tell them before. And by the way, maybe they assumed that they would have to pay for it. I've got no idea. But he would say to them very hospitably, if you bench, if you recognize that there is a God and that the fact that I'm here and that food is here and that you're able to participate in food and drink in this place because God exists, it's on me. But if not, may as well pay for it. He says, it's a very simple explanation. If you don't believe in God, the only reason that you can sustain yourself is because you're so powerful and so mighty and everything that has happened to you in your life is because you're so fantastic and it's your abilities and everything is down to you. If that's the case, then why should I give you food for nothing? If everything that you've got in your life is down to you, Well, then this food is also down to you. That'll be 595, please. But if it's a God, right? If there is a God. You can't just take from another person for nothing because this is my food. The fact that I gave it to you means that you're willing to do something for it. Somebody who is so ingrained in sin, it's not possible or necessarily to bring them back to where they need to be. The only person, you no, know, I heard this many years ago from Jonathan Sachs, a remarkable, it was, in fact, it was 1991, it was his opening gag for the first speech he gave on Kol Nidre as Chief Rabbi in St. John's Wood Synagogue, I was there. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but the light bulb's got to want to change. So, how many um, attempts to get someone to do teshuvah does it take? It can take one attempt, but the person's got to want to do teshuvah. That was his message. That's what Rabbi Ferber is saying. It's not possible to get somebody who's absolutely not interested to do teshuvah. If they haven't got any grain of regret for the way they live their life, then obviously any attempt to make them see the light is going to be an utter waste of time. However, if somebody is somewhat agnostic about their own life or about the existence of the world or any other aspect of existence, and you discuss it with them, they may be open to their ideas being changed. In which case, if there is some grain, some possibility of changing them, then, and that's a possibility, then you can do it. It's possible to bring them back. And that's what Rashi means by the use of this word, says Rabbi Ferber. Look at the word. There is an element of... Uh, desire within them to actually come back to where they need to be The and then he would bring them into his home and he would put them through that process once you're open to change then the therapist can help you Avraham Avinu saw himself as a um, evangelizing therapist he wanted to bring God into people's lives but he had to be knocking at an open door So the use of the word vashav in Rashi is an indicator to you as to what Avram Havinu's um, method was and what his mission was. Both of those things hinted at in one word of Rashi. Let's see, because I'm not going to have time to go through many more. I've got two pages here that I put together, which uh, you're welcome to access online by downloading it. But let me see if I can... If I can have, if I can put, look at one particular one which i which may be interesting. Okay, let's turn the page, page four, the second piece. Mahagaon hakadosh moharash Ostropoli. So I've put here a little bio, no, not very sophisticated. Harav shimshon ben pesach me ostropoli. Um, that was the name of the rabbi who he's quoting here. Hayarav Umukubal. He was a rabbi and a Kabbalist. He was born in Koritz in Volin, um, but he died very sadly. He was killed in the Chalmnitzky um, massacres of 1648 and 1649. He's quoting Rabbi Shimshon Ostropoler De Kasheh. Masha Amar. Remember we said this? How is it possible that Abraham ran towards them? Do you run towards people? Or do you run after people if they're heading away from you? So why does it say that he ran towards them? What does that mean? And Rashi quotes the Gemara in Baba Metzia. A very interesting thing happened. What what happened? Remember that Abraham was the, at that moment in conversation with God, and just at that moment, these three angels came. What did they see when they came? Even by the way, though, that they were sent there by God. The Gomorrah says that they saw that Abraham was still recovering and they didn't want to burden him. Yes, they had to give him a message. So they came, they saw him. That was it, what it means that they stood over him. And at that moment, they also left because they realized he's doing his bandages. He's busy with what he needs to do in order to uh, keep himself healthy. Therefore, they sort of took a step back and they and they went away to come back later. And Initially, he saw them next to him and he thought, in a moment, I'm going to get to them as he was doing his bandages up. And by the time he looked up, they'd gone away. So he ran after them. That's what the Gemara says in Baba Metzia. Continues Rabbi Ferber, and he's quoting this piece from Maharash Ostropolia. He says as follows, Im acharehem, In which case he didn't run towards them how does it work let's think of the dynamics here he's sitting at the entrance of his tent and let's say they're coming from the west and they're heading towards the east i'm making that up okay so he's sitting in the center they're coming towards him in order to run towards them they would be have have to be walking towards him right because you face a person you're running towards likratam. they got to him they saw him busy with his bandages Now they're running, sorry, they're walking away from him. So at that stage, where's he running? Acharehem, after them. He's not anymore running towards them. That would have been had he seen them in the distance and run towards them. But once they'd already got to him and were walking away, he's now running away, running after them. They have their backs to him and he's running after them. So how does it make any sense based on the... A quotation that Rashi gives us from the Gemara in Bava Metziah. Fascinating insight. Who is visiting him? These weren't ordinary people. They were Malachim, right? They were were angels. And they get to Avraham Avinu. Who do they see visiting Avraham Avinu? God, if you don't mind. What did the Kohen Gadol do when he came out of the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur? Did he turn around and turn his back to the Holy of Holies? No, he walked away backwards. How do we walk away from the Kotel? Do we turn our backs to the Kotel? Of course not. You walk, I mean, eventually you do. But initially, the first few steps that you take away from the Kotel, you walk away backwards. You keep your eyes on the holy thing. How do you think the angels walked away from Arama Vinu when they realized the Shekhinah was there? Do you think they turned their backs and went the other way? Of course not. They walked away backwards. Look what he says. It's fascinating. Hayah Derech Achorav, the Kohen Gadol, used to walk backwards out of the Holy of Holies. In Cain, Hayap So when they walked away from him because they saw he was doing up his bandages, how did they walk away from him? Backwards. So where was their face? They were still facing Avraham Avinu. He ran towards them because they were still facing him. He wasn't running after them towards their backs. He was facing towards them. So how, if that's the case, we've just said, you're not allowed to turn your back on God, right? We just said that. So we said now that Abraham ran towards the Malachim who were facing him. Where was his back? Towards God. So we've just created a new question by answering the first question. Says a Rabbi Ferber. He can't run with his... He should also have been running backwards towards those people. But he didn't run backwards. He ran towards them. In which case, he turned his face away from the Shekhinah. And for this, we have a Chazal. This is exactly why Chazal had to teach us. When it comes to Kabbalat Pnei there's one thing which is more important. And that is Chesed. You can even abandon God if you now have a duty to do chesed to someone. To the extent that even Avraham Avinu could turn his back towards God in order to go to the guests. He was running towards them because they were facing him. He didn't know why. He must have thought they were a bit strange. Never seen people walking backwards before. But there you go. But he certainly could run away from them, away from God and towards them. Why? Because as Chazal teaches us, the togetherness, right? Remember that the lulaot were the um, thingamajigs in the mishkan that had to go together, right? The one fit into the other. He didn't need to turn towards the shchina and run that way. He could face the guest. I want to ask you one last question. It's here. I'm not going to read it in the Hebrew. We just learned a Chazal. Chazal teach us that orchim, um, looking after guests, is more important than kabbalat paneachchina. How does Chazal know this? From Avram Avinu, because Avram Avinu abandoned God. He said, "Excuse me, God, a minute. I just need to go and look after some guests." And off he went and took care of the three guests. Says the Gemara, from this we learn that. Achnasat Orchim is more important than Kabbalat Pnei Hashchina. Very nice. How did Avraham Avinu know? I mean, he was the first one. So how did he know? How, how was he meant to know? He didn't have Chazal. He didn't have a Gemara. I know that it sounds sacrilegious. And you know, I remember, I, I think I mentioned this in one of my shurim the other week um, on Shabbos, that I remember when I was in primary school, uh, they made they, they used to give us things to you know to do coloring. And they gave us a picture of Avraham Avinu uh, Together with the three Arabs who were dressed as Arabs and Avraham Avinu was wearing a strimal and a bekisha, And we had to color it in So I I, I remembered as a kid. I put my hand up. I said I don't know what color bekisha they used to wear in Avraham Avinu's time in any event I assure you that just like Avraham Avinu didn't have a strimal and a bekisha. He also didn't have the Gomorrah. So how did he know that he could abandon God and go to the guests? So Rabbi Ferber comes up with a fascinating answer. He says, remember we learned that God took the sun out of its cover and then he visited Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu knew the reason why he'd taken it out of the cover was so that he shouldn't entertain guests. But God had come to visit him. So clearly the fact that the sun had been taken out of its, its, um, its cover was an indicator that guests are more important than a visit from God because otherwise God wouldn't have visited him either. But the fact that God came and the sun was out of its cover so that he shouldn't entertain guests meant that Kabbalat Faniyashchina is not as important as guests, otherwise he would have done something to make sure that even God didn't visit him. That's what Rabbi Ferber says. We'll leave it here for today. There's much more material here on the source sheet. I'm sure you can enjoy it. You can take it with you or download it. Thank you.